So, Johnny, how's your week been going? It's been going good. It's been going good. How about yeah. yours? How are you doing? Yeah, it's, it's going good. Getting a lot busier. Veronica, what, what nerdy shit have you been up to? Nothing. I've been swimming because it's hot. It is fucking hot outside. It is. It's real. It's hot here in study hall. You mean summer school? <laughs> summer uh, summer stu- satanic study hall. I guess we're still stuck in study hall, but I guess it's under the sun. Ugh. The, the summer school Speaking umbrella. Speaking of Russian, that's it's so hot. A little bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> that's right. It is so hot. I'm like my fucking dog. I'm just pant- panting. I need it's to get horrible. I need to literally go to hell just to cool off from this room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, last summer it was crazy. I think I lost uh, about 17 pounds and just sweat alone. In four episodes we recorded. Yep. Hey, listeners, your Patreon donations will help us prevent a heat stroke over here. Yeah, you'll buy a fucking thousand dollar world's <laughs> quietest air conditioner. <laughs> keep, keep a podcast host alive. Donate today. Yes. Um, so shit. Um, looks like everybody's here in class today. Um, Dennis, we're, we're fucking missing Morningstar. Where yeah, is he? Where is he? Unless I heard he's uh, giving our foreign exchange students Vetlana a tour of the study hall. You gave that assignment to him? I he, he just ran out to the, the you know the airport shuttle bus. I couldn't you, stop him. She will never come back to this country. Did you say Svetlana? Svetlana. Svetlana. Oh my! How did he get that gig? He ran first out to the bus. I couldn't. It was just like, hey, the foreign exchange students come. Boom! Right out the door. The bus. He ran to the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Well, shit, I hope Dennis is having a good fucking time. Sure um, he is. I'm sure he is. <laughs> but anyways, uh, welcome back to class, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us for another episode of Satanic Study Hall. Uh, my name is Bill, and uh, I'm a member of TST. And um, just a overall kind of, I don't know, what the how do I want to describe myself? A Satanist. Um, there you go. <laughs> there you go. How Just original. Wrap it all up. Um, Short and sweet. And today in class, I am joined by these fucking heathens. I am hot and sweaty. And I'm a member of TST as well. And a Satanist. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Um, thank you for coming to class today, Johnny. Thank you. You got here before I did. I did. You beat me by like fucking 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. He beat me. I don't know by how many seconds, but he beat me too. I just pushed you out of the way. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> I made sure I was in here first. He didn't push me. He pushed my whole car too. And I then made- he pushed me out of the way. <laughs> I made sure I got the seat by the window. So when you guys are talking about the book, I can just look at it. That's right. Daydream. You'll see Dennis out there pulling his pants down, fucking doing dances for you. <laughs> right up his alley. Hey, you want to see my morning wood? <laughs> <laughs> fucking asshole. And I think we were joined by um, the father of Satanic Study Hall. Oh, far be it for me to be the father of, of anything, I hope. Anyway, so uh, Father Al here. Bless you, my children, as always. I'm a member of the Satanic Temple. That's all I got. And that's all you got for now. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna dig for more in a little bit. Um, and I heard the valedictorian. I'm here. The nerd is here. I'm Veronica, the valedictorian. Sometimes, with the, the major exception of today, uh, sometimes the smartest person in class. No! Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I'm also a Satanist, Bill, and uh, heavily aligned with the seven tenets of the Satanic Temple. Heavily. 
heavily, heavily aligned. Heavily aligned. That's right. Uh, and we are joined by uh, a new voice, a new face to Satanic Study Hall, a longtime supporter of the podcast. Uh, welcome to Class Keen. I'm uh, a Satanist as well, a member of ST, and uh, glad to be here. Glad to join everybody. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Now, before we go um, any further, uh, I kind of would like to pass the mic over to Veronica so she can just let all of our listeners know what we are covering today. Um, I mean, it's going to be in the title as usual, <laughs> but uh, just a little teaser as to what's coming ahead as we uh, plow through some stuff here in class today. What's going on today, Veronica? Long story short, me and my partner in crime, Kian, over here are going to skip out a little bit on the art and we're going to do some reading. Uh, this episode is going to be a feature length book review, and I'm really excited because it is a novel on TST's uh, recommended reading list. So we will be covering The Master and Margarita. So thank you so much, Kian, for being here again. Again. You're welcome. Looking forward to it. Yes, this is exciting. And it's been a while since we've had one of Veronica's book reviews. Um, and so what better way to welcome this segment back um, than with uh, a full fucking episode devoted um, to such a I haven't read it because I'm lazy. Um, I could have read it. I've got the PDF and I've had it for a while, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty I'm going to after going over the material. Uh, that I did to prepare for this episode. So I'm super excited about this. I think uh, it's a great way to bring the book review back. And um, I think maybe we can, depending upon, I know the art room and everything, but I think we need another nerd uh, in our community to potentially, um, if they're interested, maybe step up and take on a book club. Something I know people have talked about it. A lot of people haven't had the time. Um, I think that's a really good idea. Maybe Johnny should run it. Yeah. That would be a great idea, because I'm all about reading. <laughs> what would be your book, book, first book choice? Hmm, probably Horton Hears a Who. <laughs> <laughs> we could start with that. I'm sure there's um there's some fucking satanic Easter eggs buried into yeah. those powerful words. Yep. I think, a while, I think a while ago you said you were going to do Redfish, Redfish Bluefish. Bluefish. Yes. <laughs> Choose your own adventure book. Yeah, Remember those? Yeah. Now he's upgraded a little bit. Um, so, yeah, uh, <laughs> if you want to reach out to us and um, volunteer for that role or with anything else that you uh, might want to reach out to us about, you can do that by sending us an email at satanicstudyhall at gmail.com. Um, you can also hit us up on any social media. We're pretty responsive. You can subscribe to our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash satanicstudyhall. Um, I mean, you could shoot us an Apple podcast uh, review and message and, um, you know, there's lots of ways to hit us up and uh, we're pretty open to any suggestions, any critiques um, and just making new making new connections. Uh, and what we're going to do here is uh, just a second after we push to a couple more things is we're going to cut and read, which is going to be a new satanic study hall um tradition routine i don't i don't fucking know uh but we're gonna read listener emails um and we're just gonna kind of every every episode one of us is just gonna read out loud a piece of mail with the permission of course <laughs> from the people we're not just gonna read random shit and just read your shit business out there i mean we could, well, we could. no what are you gonna do about it <laughs> <laughs> no nah, we wouldn't do that um but yeah, so uh, we're going to take care. We're going to take care of a few things and then we'll get to that. Um, and as I mentioned before, if you happen to be listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please consider giving us a rating and a review. Uh, it does help 
a uh, little algorithm um, allow more people to come across Satanic Study Hall in their suggestions, I guess. So um, that'd be great. Let us know what's up. Father Al, how are you now? Hot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm doing good. Doing good. Uh, kind of a, a great weekend. Hung out with uh, some friends uh, on Friday night. Just did a little uh, cookout and uh, did some poker with the boys on Saturday night. But uh, it is, uh, it's nice to be able to get out and do things, especially now that the, uh, a lot of the pandemic restrictions have been lifted. So, and great to be still hanging out here in study hall. Veronica, how are you now? I'm great. Uh, this is my element. I bask in the hellfire. It's perfect. It's my natural habitat. Oh, fuck everybody else. <laughs> no, I loved it. I had a great weekend. I saw Sarah, who is a art room and goat farm regular. Um, we got to some like swap some art pieces. So she made me a really beautiful satanic necklace. I don't have it with me right now because I didn't want to wear it to work. Um, but it's a really awesome beaded um, beaded necklace with a pentagram um, wire. She did the wiring at the end. So it's great. Totally the colors I love, like lots of reds and yellows and oranges and just the things I'm crazy about. So uh, super excited to finally meet like another person in our community who doesn't live necessarily close, but necessarily too far. Like it's, it's cool that this, like I have friends that I can now see in person <laughs> in our little community. So that was super fun. And um, the rest of it, yeah, it was just swimming, uh, swimming, being out in the sun and swimming. And uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Veronica, it's been did, great. Did you get any did, swimming in this yeah, weekend? Swim by any chance? Just, just a bit. Just a bit. Okay. Yeah. Just a bit. Yeah, no, really happy. Enjoyed the weekend. Happy to be here. Really happy Kian's joining us for this book review. How are you, Bill? Oh, how am I? I'm doing good. Um, I'm adjusting to this newness of not having to work face to face with the world. Um, I've been doing that the last 20 years. I never said that a lot, but holy shit, is it a difference? Like it's a whole mental shift. Uh, I got to deal with some people on the phone, like some pissed off people with, you know, their own created sense of urgency. But uh, other than that, it's not face to face. People can call me names all they want over the phone. <laughs> like I have a mute button. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but outside of that, no. Nah, I mean, it's it's great. Um, some home improvement fucking problems. Uh, but I don't know. What are you gonna do? You have to fucking buckle down and take care of it. Um, water main, Ugh, expensive shit. Um, what else? Work, home, rinse, lather, repeat, as Johnny had, you know, used to say on, you know, the first dozen episodes, <laughs> which is, you know, but, um, one thing I do like about the new job is no day is like another, uh, as repetitive as it might get, it's still nothing that I'm, that I'm used to. It's all brand new and I'm loving it. Oh, I was going to tell you, uh, we had the intern start today. Uh, <laughs> we had our Ryan start. <laughs> I think he had a good first day, but I was definitely like they were walking him around the office today and I thought of you and the office and uh, made me laugh today. But oh, real quick, too, before before we move ahead, um, I did get in the mail uh, the Lucian Greaves edition of the Devil's Deck from Shiva Honey. You did. You were passing them around class. We were all taking a peek. Yes. Um, you know, there's a little booklet that describes, you know, each one of the cards. We've got that great cloth uh, with the Serpentate logo on it. Uh, came with a pack of incense and a picture from Lucian that was signed uh, here in study hall. We got number 13 out of 30. Cause I think there were like 30, uh, 30 variations of that package, but not with it's fucking awesome. I'm excited to go through it and to put them to use and to show them off. They look great. 
um, definitely worth worth the wait. And if you haven't seen them, um, check out Shiva Honey's uh, entire line. But definitely take a close look at the Devil's Deck. I think you'll be impressed. Yeah, have, yeah. Has anybody has anybody else? Um, what do you think, Veronica? Of the Devil's Deck, yeah. I thought it was great. I thought the illustrations were pretty on point. Um, I need to kind of read through the booklet and decipher the meanings of stuff, but I do like looking at the cards and assigning my own meaning onto things uh, before I look at the instructional pieces of whatever uh, whatever I order or whatever I get. So um, I'm really excited about the art, actually, and I'm really happy that you, you got a copy of these because it's pretty cool. And apparently it goes hand in hand with the Devil's Tome as well. Uh, I guess we're going to move on to new guy. How the fuck are you? Yes. Kian, how are you now? (laughs) I'm hanging in there. I, uh, unlike Veronica, do not like the heat. The heat can piss right off. I like cold, (laughs) wet, miserable, rainy. I did not move away from Texas for this, uh, ridiculous nonsense. Oh, you thought it was going to get better. Did you? (laughs) Well, no, I mean, be fair. Uh, it's like I told my uh, my I've got a bunch of relatives back in Britain, and that you know they'll call us around the holidays, and we'll tell them what the weather's like, and they're like, "Oh, that must be so lovely, yeah." Because you haven't had your knickers stuck to your arse for the preceding six months, <laughs> you don't you don't have to pay the buy-in for this like uh, seventy degrees in fucking December. <laughs> That's my opinion. Have but you ever heard of a beautiful, beautiful place called? Well. Have you ever heard of a beautiful place called Nova Scotia? Uh, I was just talking about that the other day. My parents were, my dad was trying to give me crap about, uh, about global warming, making it warmer now where I live in Northern Virginia. I'm like, uh, that just means I'll keep moving right up the coast until I end up next to Walter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. I'm glad. Um, I'm really glad you're here, Ken. This is great. Um, I know seeing you regularly in the art room, which is on Sundays and Tuesdays on our goat farm discord, by the way, uh, we can't plug that enough. Um, there's so much cool, uplifting, um, and I'm not trying to be all corny and positive, but really it, it, it is. I mean, there's some storytelling, there's sharing. Um, sometimes there's just dead ass silences people create, uh, and that's perfectly okay. Sometimes there's a lot of intense discussion about Satanism and literature and art and, you know, anything we want. Um, but I am really, you know, I'm proud of it. I, me and Kian came up with this idea together, and I think it was on a Zoom one night. It was just one on the, it was uh, on the goat farm Zooms on one of them. And, um, you know, it started out as just a concept. It came from COVID, you know, like nobody's allowed to go into coffee houses or wherever they want. Like me and Sarah, we went to, I think we went to a Panera Bread this this weekend, and there was a guy sitting there with his laptop. He had his mask on, but it's like, I don't think I've seen anyone just sit in a public place and work on whatever they want to work on. I haven't seen that in, it's been a year, but it feels like two. It feels like three. It feels like the longest year that has ever happened to me, ever. And that's so weird. Um, And it did start as a kind of way to do it virtually since we were deprived of that public space for a long time. But now I'm starting to realize, like, it's just a way to see my friends a few times a week now and and connect over stuff we really love. And it it doesn't even matter if we can go into public places anymore (laughs) um, because these are the people I want to be drawing with. (laughs) Yeah, I got to get in there. Sooner or later. And you, you, my friend, or like you, you were always, you know, we always, you know, you don't give yourself enough credit, but some of the stuff that you've showed us, 
Holy shit. Like the landscapes and the Bob, like Bob Ross over you, here. Yeah. yeah. You know, Johnny Ross over here. Yeah. Some happy little trees. Happy little inverted crosses. <laughs> I'm go. a happy little Satanist painting well, happy little tree. Put a happy little pentagram right here. <laughs> Give him a friend. There's a happy little goat. I just want to, <laughs> I just want to see you with the Bob Ross afro. No, and, and, the, per, the and, permed hair. We can get him one. And you remember how when he used to clean his brush, he would always beat the fuck out of you. Let's beat, beat the, the devil, devil out of it. Yeah. And then now we, in our version, let's just beat, beat the, the Jesus, Jesus out of it. <laughs> just beat the Jesus out of it real quick and just do that fucking pat noise with the, with the brush against the, uh. Gotta laugh every time you do it, too. <laughs> he does. That's what he did. He giggles after every yeah, time. Does. He can't help it. Sometimes he can push through the giggle, but. I say it as if he's still doing it. Rest in peace, Bob Ross. Yeah, I know, for real. I, I liked your shit. He was a good man. I don't. I wouldn't pay any of those prices for any of those pictures. <laughs> no, but. he never sold one of them. Like he would give them away to like PBS stations, but he never sold one of his. I think his family does now. Uh, I think. Right? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. He's trying estate, to make money off his name. Yeah, the estate probably takes over that. But um, I think all of the paintings were donated to a specific. It was like a PBS organization yeah. or a museum they had. I, mm -hmm. I don't remember which one, but it was it was something. Yeah, his son's a greedy prick. <laughs> <laughs> as long as those paintings didn't end up in a fucking church. A happy little bank account. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Put that $1,000 in my happy little bank account. Now, speaking of happy little bank accounts, um, all these tiny little dents just keep hitting the Catholic church, don't they, Al? Oh, yes, they do. All these lawsuits and fucking allegations. And uh, I just, um, I randomly picked you as I was, you know, going through everything here for study hall. And I hope you did your homework because that's the perfect segue into what I believe was your homework assignment um, on this fucked up little article about a German archbishop. Yes. Uh, today we bring you the, uh, the story of Germany's Carl Cardinal Reinhard Marx, who I'm not sure if we're going to call this one of the good asshole um, Catholic um, priest, uh, you know, higher ups or the, the bad ones. I don't know. So he is offered to resign as Archbishop of Munich, uh, apparently in, in protest of the catastrophe of sexual abuse by clerics over the past decades. Um, there's apparently a huge uproar. There was a, a, uh, a by the German faithful, which um, believe it or not, I think is one of the like the wealthiest uh, group of Catholics are, are over in Germany. Um, there was a uh, the the Vatican was looking into the um, uh, they're investigating uh, the Archdiocese of Cologne in, in Germany, which is the the largest archdiocese of of the Catholic Church over there. And uh, um, he's surprisingly he's a, an influential liberal figure. In, in Catholicism, he actually, um, a side note, he's a proponent of what's called the a synodal path, which is a movement that wants to give lay Catholics more influence over the, uh, the running of the, the church and issues like, you know, appointing bishops, sexual morality, priestly celibacy. Um, conservative Catholics have, are against all this saying it could lead to a schism. Oh. What a horrible thing that would be. That's never happened before. <laughs> no, never. So Schisms, um, religion, what? 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 But anyway, um, so he's offered to resign. The uh, the Pope is apparently who's a who likes the guy. He he's sitting on it. It could take months, but um, what you gonna do, Francis? Shh, do something. You, <laughs> delete. 
You can do it. <laughs> but um, the Pope. Oh my God. so I mean, you know, as criti- critical as I am of the uh, Catholic Church, especially the the hierarchy, uh, I, I got to give this guy credit for for standing up for what he sees an injustice. The only criticism I do have of him throughout all this is the fact that, you know, when the good people leave. And apparently, like, they never found out anything he did wrong, this this, um, Cardinal Marx. When the good people leave, then the bad people are left behind. So I'm I'm, I'm happy he's making a stand and recognizing this, but I'm also a little disappointed that, you know, as someone who is a liberal, who actually wants to see change and actually wants to stand up for it, walking out the door may not necessarily be the best way to do it. Yeah, when Trotsky flees to South America, guess who takes the... (laughs) (laughs) Guess <laughs> who takes the country over? Yeah, so 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 there it is. Good luck, uh, Cardinal Marx. Hopefully, if you if the Pope does accept your resignation, which is I'd say just get the fuck out. Um, hopefully, he'll be doing something to continue the uh, the works against uh, the abuses by the Catholic Church. So. That's so interesting to kind of read about a cardinal. I mean, you you do every once in a while, but everything is so Pope oriented. I don't even remember getting. Uh, bishop or cardinal news, I guess, even when I was in Catholic school. I know we were let, like, it, they, they let us know when a bishop was promoted to cardinal, but we didn't get, like, any other, like, who resigned or who retired even, like, who, you know, like, that never popped up. Like, cardinals and bishops are kind of neglected in, in that realm. I don't know. Oh, I, I think in their big mansions and their big palatial estates, they <laughs> they don't have to worry about the lack of media attention on them. <laughs> They're just good being on the down low doing their dirty little deeds. So do you think he really did it for the, these reasons, like, you know, out of, you know, support or recognition or to bring light to it? Or is this motherfucker trying to get ahead of something? I have no idea. I mean, these days you never can tell. I mean... I mean, he could be doing it to get away from things, but I mean, they haven't found anything on him unless he knows something. I mean, maybe, maybe he's actually has a conscience and it actually got ahead of him. I mean, you'd like to think it was done for the right reasons, but at the end of the day, unless something comes out to the contrary, you never really know. That is a good point. Did he name names? Like, did he come out with like a list of, um, this is who's perpetuating what, this is when they did it? No, it was kind of, it was kind of seen as a, um, as a shot at uh, this this cardinal uh, Walecki, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, yeah, Rainer Maria Walecki. Right. It sounds like um, he, uh, you know, someone had um, one, one commentator, this uh, this religious scholar Thomas Schuler. Uh, he basically said that this is a rebuke of uh, Walecki by Cardinal Marx. Um, he's directly challenging this cardinal. Um, when he talks of those who hide behind legal assessments and aren't prepared to tackle the systematic causes of sexualized violence in the church with bold reforms. So again, you know, I mean, he's, he's kind of going against this other cardinal, um, who is being investigated, but you know, I mean, you know, it's, let's hope we see some, some good change out of all of this. I mean, you know, we can never forget the victims and they definitely owe our owed justice, but you know, we, we can't change the past. We can only, you know, rectify it and serve justice and hopefully you know in the future find some ways to you know to um to make things better to right. prevent these from happening again well, for, unfortunately though i mean that's absolutely true but these these fucking catholic priests and cardinals and you know all the way up to the top they're just like they remind me of that game fucking whack-a-mole like you, you get one you catch one and fucking four more pop up it's it, it's it's horrible 
Um, All I have to say is, um, Cardinal Marks, if you're listening, which I know you never will, there, there's always a home for you over at uh, over at Satanism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to get rid of the whole Catholic thing, but you know, at this point, I don't think that's too much of a change. And also, Francis, if you're listening, there's not. <laughs> Denounce it all. The valedictorian right. takes no prisoners. <laughs> Any other thoughts on that story that Al brought to the table? Bueller? Look at, anybody? Looking at you, Johnny. Looking at you. No. <laughs> All right. Well, it's my turn. Um, I'm up this time for a homework assignment. Um, and uh, this is from the, is it the Lad Bible? The LAD Bible? I'm going to call it the Lad Bible. Uh, ladbible.com. The article um, is man attempts to fast for 40 days so God would give him a Lamborghini. Uh, Nothing more needs to be said about that article. (laughs) Yes, uh, that's it. When's the funeral? (laughs) Um, So this was published on May 25th. So quoting the article, a man who thought fasting for 40 days and nights would result in God giving him a Lamborghini almost died after attempting the extreme fast. The 27-year-old church youth leader from Bindora in central Zimbabwe Wait, took himself no, off to he a... he was a youth leader? Yeah, You're took, teaching the youth. He took himself off to a mountainous area where he hid out so no one would try and attempt to make him eat. He was rescued 33 days later looking frail and almost unrecognizable, the Mabar Times reports. Um, and he, <laughs> the man had been fasting in hopes of getting a dream Lamborghini for his girlfriend who told him that it was her dream car. Because he wasn't able to afford it, uh, the unemployed bloke thought fasting might encourage God to step in and help him out. Um, (laughs) Moving forward, and I do not think he got a Lamborghini, um, but he was found just in the nick of time, taken to a local hospital, and has recently, or as the time this article came out, started showing signs of recovery. Um, And then the man's church leader came up and made a statement that said, he should at least have fasted for a job since he is unemployed. <laughs> yeah. He, Ouch, he, he fucking trolled him to the media and basically said, fuck that guy. Um, kind-hearted churchgoers tried to raise enough cash to give him a Lamborghini, but decided against the fundraiser after finding out how much it costs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, idiots. My yeah, God. Right. Uh, like 200, 300 bucks for one of them things. Holy <laughs> shit. So, I mean, Maybe a 1991 Toyota Corolla. <laughs> Just settle for that. You're a 15 Nissan Sentra. <laughs> The church leader publicly shames them, and then he gets all this hope, like, I'm going to get a fucking Lamborghini after all. And they're like, nope. Yeah. How does the Bible story go? He's in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and the devil appears how many times and tempts him with gold and uh, kingdoms. And, you know, too bad it wasn't a Lamborghini. That guy would have said, yeah. <laughs> the money sold. That- <laughs> My soul is sold. Jesus be like, fuck yeah. He rides a Lamborghini out, out of the here. fucking desert, gives it to his girl, picks up his girlfriend. It's, it's like the um uh the what was it the um the, the Lincoln Park rapist or whatever it's like the the uh, the interview I'm, I forget what the name of it all was where the guy's like you are just so dumb you, you are, are really you dumb. are really dumb yeah oh yeah that's the Hydra kids Hydra wife Hi, yeah that's him yeah. I forget his name yeah but he's like you are just dumb then there's the auto tune <laughs> remix of that song I fucking love it. <laughs> The small amount of cash that they did manage to pull together was actually used to help pay for some of his medical bills and, <laughs> and not a Lamborghini. Well, um, that's still awful. 
<laughs> That's still bad. That's still not letting Darwinism do what it's supposed to do in this case. Meanwhile, at our Lady of Perpetual Misery uh, <laughs> community hospital, how's he doing? <laughs> and then, I mean, after this, it's all fluff. It's just them talking about scientifically how much water you need and water temperatures and sunlight and how much water you lose when you exhale and your sweat. And, uh, yeah. I must, be, I must not have any water left then. <laughs> know, right? What the fuck? Actually, this is a little bit sciencey and a little bit off topic, but I was watching a, um, a documentary on the Paraguay. Paraguay plane crash in the Andes. And actually, so what what happened, like part of it, they were getting really dehydrated, you know, even like it's the altitude and the snow, but you're not really getting dehydrated because of the climate up there. You're getting dehydrated because at that altitude, it's so hard to breathe that your lungs and internal organs are working like five times as hard as they need to regularly. So that's dehydrating you. And then when you go to eat the snow, even if it's providing you with water and substance, it's decreasing your body temperature to a point where you know you're getting hypo hypothermia a little bit faster um so that was interesting like you know being stranded in the mountains as opposed to stranded in the desert like our our youth leader over here that guy lasted 33 days i think god should give him a pass that's just and i think the devil should give him a lamborghini yeah there you go well god fails again yes (laughs) what the fuck man All these stories we hear and just God's got- just sitting here with the fucking popcorn like I just I'm just gonna watch this and see what happens. Y'all ain't praying hard enough. <laughs> Pray harder, <laughs> give more. Oh yeah. Do you hear about the Facebook fucking prayer tests that they're where you can ask for prayers like in a Facebook post? Like I can post on Facebook and there'll be an option to ask for prayers. No. I did see that, but I didn't, like, I was so uninterested that I didn't even look into how it worked. I just rolled my eyes and kept scrolling. <laughs> I love looking at the, like, the memes that come out, like, like Jesus sitting in his computer. Oh, uh, only five more likes, and I would have given Jimmy his new kidney. Oh, those were everywhere at one point. I don't see them anymore. I don't know if it's because they're not there anymore, or because I blocked everybody who used to do it. I have no idea which one, but either way, I'm happy that they're not around me Tots and Tots and pears, people. Tots and pears. That's right. That was some, that's a good school lunch right there. You pair that up with a little cheeseburger. Cheeseburger, tots, and pears. Some good shit. Um, but yeah, so that's the article. Um, God fails again. Today's word is camaraderie. Definition of camaraderie. A spirit of trust and goodwill among people closely associated in activity or endeavor. Examples of camaraderie. Camaraderie amongst teammates and co-workers. Selfless acts of kindness and camaraderie. Camaraderie used in a sentence. It's all fun and camaraderie until someone ends up in the gulag. That's all for this edition of the Devil's Dictionary. Remember, degenerates. False and forced camaraderie leads to the drinking of poisoned Kool-Aid. That got dark. Alright, comrades, we are no longer 
Satanists today. We are Stalinists and we are, do we do book review. We do book review. We do all the book reviews here. And uh, today we are doing The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. One of the easier Russian last names to pronounce. Um, so I usually start this off by re- like writing my own synopsis of the books. But I in this case, I did read, this is recommended reading for TST. And they did do a really, really great synopsis, in my opinion. So I am going to read that version. And uh, Kian, again, is here with me. And we're going to discuss the book. And, you know, every good Satanist should read it. And if you're not a Satanist, it's a great book. You should read what it. What about the bad Satanists? The bad Satanists should read it, too. They should read it, it too, It might right? make them better Satanists. I mean, it's a point. <laughs> That's the point. You hear that, you fuckers? Okay, I'm done. Yeah, you hear that, Father? You hear that, Comrade Al and Comrade Johnny? <laughs> In Soviet Russia, book read you. <laughs> <laughs> This book book would have been banned in uh, Soviet, Soviet Russia, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, When the devil arrives in 1930s Moscow, consorting with a retinue of odd associates, including a talking black cat, an assassin, and a beautiful naked witch, his antics wreak havoc among the literary elite of the world capital of atheism. Meanwhile, the master, author of an unpublished novel about Jesus and Pontius Pilate, languishes in despair in a psychiatric hospital while his devoted lover, Margarita, decides to sell her soul to save him. As Bulgakov's dazzlingly exuberant narrative, and that's very, very true, weaves back and forth between Moscow and ancient Jerusalem, studded with scenes ranging from a giddy satanic ball to the murder of Judas in Gethsemane, uh, Margarita's enduring love for the master joins the strands of plot across space and time. Uh, and once again, I thought that was a really, really good way to phrase it. This story really bounces around, um, even though it is about the master and Margarita. It's it's not written in vignette format, I would say, but it definitely weaves between the devil you know, messing with different elites in Moscow. And then it does go over to our protagonists, as you'd call them, in different chapters. But it's not one, um, <laughs> it's not one like cohesive story you can just, you know, strand together. It's not like very chronological. Um, so the background, a little bit about it, it was written between 1928 and 1940 during the height of Stalin's reign. A censored version was published in 1966 through 67, I think in a magazine at first, and a very censored version again, um, after after both the author's and Stalin's death, because it's better to be double safe than, you know, starving in a gulag and cannibalizing your comrades, so Uh, (laughs) better safe than dead. Well, he was. Um, It is often considered one of the best uh, novels published in the 20th century and one of the best Soviet satires ever written. Second to my one true love, the film The Death of Stalin. <laughs> um, and Kian, any more on that? Um, just uh, a little background on the author. He was a doctor and was on the side of whites during the uh, Red Civil War as opposed to the Reds and worked in the theater, which informed. Uh, a lot of the plot and characters in the book. So he took a lot of stuff from his own personal life and used it in ways that gave it a lot of realism and made the characters more fleshed out. It didn't like the history and the background, like informs so much of the Soviet aesthetic that, that goes on in the novel. We'll get into it. Um, it's relevance to the satanic temple, um, once again, it's on the recommended reading list, most uh, most likely for its extraordinarily um, very relevant, like historically relevant in documentation of the devil. Um, it 
hits on that a lot, like imagery we've discussed on the podcast before, um, but depictions of Satan, um, as well as Satan's role in symbolically opposing and prevailing over arbitrary authority, in this case, the Soviet Union, and any other laws and institutions, which kind of, you know, hints back to a little tenant that we have. So a little bit of background, I think, for both me and Kian. I read this before I was a Satanist. I read it, um, I think it was my junior year of college. And I give my professor a little bit of credit. It was a Russian history class. It was an elective, and, you know, I like it a lot, so I took it. Um, And we were covering a lot of the freedom of expression going on uh, in in the Russian Revolution and, you know, after Lenin's death and during Stalin's reign. We went over a lot of poetry, but this is the full-length novel that we chose to read. And I got to say, as a Satanist rereading it, it's been a really cool experience. I give that professor a lot of credit for... There was a lot of, like, (laughs) Soviet Union and North Korea and, you know, Cambodia apology going on in my university, but not with this professor. And I had never heard of the novel before. But, and I remember liking it in college, but this was an entirely different experience reading it as a Satanist. Um, what about you, Ken? Sort of weird, coincidental ways the book weaves in and out of uh, my life at large and, and definitely uh, my journey with Satanism. When I was a kid, I was walking around the grocery store with my mother back in the 80s uh, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. I, my parents listened to a lot of country at the time. And I happened to see some, you know, music magazine and some hair metal band on the front of it. I said, Mom, why don't you like rock and roll? And she <laughs> stopped and she said, uh, I love rock and roll. That's not rock and roll. And so she took me home and imparted unto me her double vinyl Hot Rocks Rolling Stones album. So hearing Sympathy for the Devil was like a song we're very very familiar with here <laughs> right and and it it's germane to the to the discussion about the book because uh that was the book that inspired jagger to write this that song um it was when it came out in 67 i think marianne faithful gave him a copy to read and we have for the the wonderful work that resulted i'm a third generation skeptic my grandfather uh, believed that uh, religion was a con, and so I was raised without religion. But even you know, I've I've heard a lot of people talking in their personal journeys of, uh, about the light bulb moment when they realized that religion was mm, nonsense. But you can still you can be raised without it and still look around at the world around you and realize this is all upside down and backwards. I'm in the, I'm living in the madhouse and the, the, particularly the line, the lines from sympathy for the devil, uh, every cop, all the saints is that kind of inversion that I think came directly from into the song. And it's that realization that you're living in a system that is hypocritical and unjust and messed up. Yeah. Very, very illogical and double full of double standards. Yeah. Full of double standards. And then, so fast forward uh, years later, uh, I think it was 92, 93 high school sometime Danzig three, how the gods kill comes out. And the cover 
is a painting by H.R. Giger, which you can drink now because anybody who's been in the art room for five minutes knows I will mention Giger constantly. He's my favorite artist. And we um, love it. We always do. I learned so much. (laughs) (laughs) They... Danzig uh, contracted with Giger to use his painting, The Master and Margarita, for the cover of that album. And so I simultaneously discovered H.R. Giger and through Giger learned the Baphomet was and so many different things about the occult and, and how they're relevant to his art and why they're relevant and all that kind of thing. But I also was like the master of margarita. That's a weird title. for Exactly. Yeah, it painting. really grabs so your attention. I, Yeah. So I went and found out eventually, I mean, this is all, you know, in pre-internet or very, very, very early internet days. So I had to do some digging, but I eventually discovered the book and read the book. And I had read, you know, the Satanic Bible and all that kind of thing. And, you know, like a lot of people have a similar experience with that book. There are parts of it that, yeah, this makes sense. This, This sounds good. And then there's other parts where it's like, well, this is a little wonky. You know, but reading the master Margarita was, it was like, yeah, this is, this is what I feel like it's, and it doesn't matter that it's about 1930s Stalinist Soviet Union. The great thing about the book is that it's written in such a way that you can connect with it. If you live in a system that exhibits a lot of behaviors that you don't agree with. And um, the use of the devil is really like, it was an interesting choice. I don't, I haven't seen that done too much in literature or not literature that was, I guess, written around this time. Um, if that makes sense, there's probably something else out there, but that's why it was a little bit, even though I liked it, I, I liked the imagery. I liked the story in college. I like the devil thing confused me. The incorporation of Jesus and Pilate confused me a little bit. I liked his, um, like the level of historical fiction he incorporated because I always like historical fiction. And I think this particular one was written very well. Uh, just his scene with the crucifixion was 10 times more believable than it would be if you were hearing it from frankly, a, a Christian or, um, uh, or the Bible itself. You know, it sounded like it was coming from a historian who was, you know, very knowledgeable about it and was able to, like, incorporate that into novel format. Again, like, rereading it. And and it's so cool that <laughs> the book informed a song that, you know, inf- like, and the book also informed a painting and, like, a piece of art that, you know, later informed you and a little bit of, like, what you found out about Satanism after the fact. With the crucifixion, the way he tells it, it it's uh, you know it's partially the the historical details that he works in about the way the Romans were outfitted and all that kind of thing. But he also he injects a level of humanism into the entire story by just giving you little details about like how it how hot it was that day and how every, all the soldiers were uncomfortable and Pilate was expecting to have migraine every any second missing kind of his thing. dog so very much you know it's yeah, not even that you're yeah. you're pissed Just, off at these people um you know oh he's a person with a dog and he cares about his dog um and uh, just the scene with, um, yeah, like, and, and portraying Jesus's main disciple, I think, also is kind of like a bumbling fool. But it's still interesting to read that scene from his full disciple's eyes and, and what he's going through and seeing and what he's thinking. Uh, that happens a little bit later. It, the story actually starts off with the decapitation of a, he's a 
higher up in uh, the Russian literary society, and his name is Berlioz, and um, he's having a conversation with a poet named Ivan on a public bench. And basically, that's where the devil appears for the first time. And um, what Berlioz and Ivan are having a conversation about is, like, correct me if I'm wrong, Ivan um, writes a, a poem about Jesus, right? And, um, yeah. well, it's a religious poem. To- Exactly. Betray, but he tries to portray him from like a, a Soviet atheist perspective. perspective. Right. And the poem is rejected. And the reason, even though Ivan is still towing the party line, which is a complete rejection of Christianity and the orthodoxy and a complete worship of the state at that point, uh, Berlioz is giving him the critique that uh, even though you presented it in through, through a Soviet lens, you're still insinuating that this historical figure lived at any point, uh, which is wrong. We can't accept that. Uh, so the devil appears and uh, makes a bunch of prophecies, basically, and they all come true. Berlioz ends up uh, without a head. And that's kind of where it kicks off. From that point on, the devil goes around um, messing with all of the artistic, uh, mainly artistic elites of Moscow and showing the the citizens and, and the comrades uh, all of their uh, hypocrisy and the double standards that go on. And it's, it's very, it's kind of horrific. We'll get into that a little bit later too, but it's also very, very satirical uh, the way that this author um, betrays the, the utter hypocrisy in Soviet society. So I did pick for what stands out. The first one was satire. Um, my first example is extravagance of the elite in plain sight of the public and of each other. In Soviet Russia, people, everybody knows this, but there was an emphasis on uplifting the proletariat, making everybody equal, wiping out the idea of class. Um, and in the book, it's very descriptive of how the elites are still living. So even though they all mutually subscribe to a society that um, you know, condemned material luxury and everything else you would have. And we're all equal comrades and we all work and we all share the wealth and everything. There's definitely still an upper crust. And uh, they're all very like uptight artisans, a lot of them. Uh, they still go to elite restaurants. Um, they still have pretty elite places to live. Uh, they still like kind of gossip and bicker over like the taste of food at certain restaurants and, you know, converse about which hotels um, are better. And they're doing this in plain sight of each other for most of the novel um, without acknowledging at all that it's totally antithetical to what they've, you know, mutually subscribed to in their society. Uh, And then the devil comes and ruins all of that for them, which is the uh, reoccurring (laughs) the reoccurring situation in the novel. I I would say that he screws with them specifically for that reason. Uh, Would you say the same thing, Kian? Yeah, he's uh, the way that uh, Voland, as he's called in the, in the novel, uh, Satan, he, the way he's written, he doesn't suffer hypocrisy, but he's also not, he's, he's kind of surprisingly not a very active figure in the story Mm -hmm. a lot of it a lot of the chaos that happens is his assistance as they're sometimes yeah carrying out his Um, his bidding for him (laughs) right and but he's very much written as a figure who sees through all the hypocrisy and the 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 self-delusion that's the thing is you know to to live in a society that at level of hypocrisy you have to 
blind yourself almost. It's like it's almost like he's observing them as like an anthropological experiment. Like when he the you know, your favorite scene of the magic show, he just sits there and observes right, exactly. as chaos ensues. And says and that the people the, of Moscow people have not changed. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I mean again, that's how the even though this was written about a specific place in time, it's applicable to a lot of different situations because you can look around at your own society, and I, f- I feel like frequently uh, Satanists do this because, you know, we're actively rejecting or walking away from, you know, typical dogma. I mean, it's whether it's oh, definitely. Uh, like active Catholic party line or, <laughs> yeah. yeah, whether it's the Catholic party line or, or communist dogma, it's still the controlling element is saying this is the truth. And you can look around yourself and, and see that. It's not the truth. So in order to exist in that in that kind of system, you have to blind yourself, delude yourself, yourself, all that kind of thing. And and basically Satan's party in the story does nothing but blow that up. <laughs> yeah, completely. Uh, like one really good illustration just at the very beginning of the novel. Novel, for example, we get you know a literary elite um, kind of criticizing this amateur poet over you know the <laughs> the subject of what he's writing. Uh, you know, this isn't acceptable. This is like hardcore, not acceptable, even if you were doing what we wanted. And then in the next scene, you see they're all sitting around at a really fancy uh, equivalent of a country club you know, discussing the material luxury that they'll be eating and partaking in that night. So it's just a very, like, sly uh, double standard um, that this, you know, that is being enforced on all of them. And he does kind of blow it up. I mean, he's, uh, the devil is, like, pissed that they're so willing to go along with it. And the next one, this kind of ties into the same thing, too, um, is the apartments. So back in mm. Soviet Russia, again, there was state-sponsored uh, state sponsored communal apartment housing. Um, and this was a really big bragging point of the Soviet Union was to be able to provide state housing. Um, but the truth about it was that they were all cramped. They were very ill-constructed, most of them. And it was very limited. Um, and they were extremely competitive to get into. So even though they were supposed to be for everyone and it's supposed to be this utopia, it turns out that a lot of the elites uh, in Russia and the elites portrayed in this novel are just kind of like waiting for friends and obscure relatives to die so they can inherit this apartment housing. And uh, it also ties into after one of the murders (laughs) Satan indirectly commits, I guess you would say, Um, He brags to this elite about, you know, I'm going to get your apartment after you die. That's what's going to happen. And it takes the literary elite back, um, you know, a lot. And these apartments, despite um, they're supposed to be becoming a commonality in this new society they're building, they're just like a point of greed, you know, for everybody. And uh, Satan comedically using that against one of them was also really fun to me and comedic and satirical. I was going to say, I don't think Satan did, you know, I don't think he, he, he indirectly did that. I still think that death was on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> he prophesied it, but he wasn't the, the mechanism by which it happened. It was um, the, uh, the, the trolley train driver. It was Anushka. <laughs> oh, Anushka should drop the sunflower um, oil. And the voice of the narrator is also uh, brings you into that whole sense of uh, 
the way things are versus the way that they're supposed to be. Uh, the The voice of the narrator is a little unreliable, conspiratorial. He kind of says, oh, this man is very clever for finding this way to get this apartment. But it's your the reader is to understand that. Yeah, but it's shady. Right. And there's all sorts of examples of that littered throughout the book. There's all sorts of uh, petty theft, fraud, adultery. And it's it kind of speaks to this larger thing of any kind of utopian, idealistic ideology, whether it's religion or man is perfectible. If we just do things this way, everything will be perfect. Right. Man and the, is the problem is and, yeah. that man isn't towing the line. Right. And it's, it's sort of taking, taking the piss on that concept, like showing that that's not accurate to what we all experience in our day-to-day lives. You know? Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, like just as another example, the, the envy and the greed that, you know, these apartments alone who are supposed like, and the apartments are supposed to be this, again, utopian commodity and, and concept, um, they're all vying for it. Uh, Satan gets it after <laughs> committing murder, I guess, um, or watching somebody's head uh, come off, and uh, he gets it. But at the same time, we find out a little bit later in the novel that this elite, um, this decapitated elite's uh, very arbitrary uncle, who, and when I say arbitrary, I mean like they're distant related i don't even think they're related by blood it's like a like a nephew by marriage or something um but he's considered one of the highest like one of the smartest people in the city and even he with all of his accomplishments and accolades um is still vying for the apartment of his recently dead nephew i think he skips the funeral too just to get to moscow and to inherit this apartment that (laughs) shouldn't even really be his and um you know, Satan, it's Satan's apartment now. Just a uh, kind of like a uniform stripping you see of material uh, from these people. And then building off of that, it's probably after reading it a second time, my favorite scene in the whole book. And it happens maybe not necessarily in the middle, but close to the middle of the novel. Satan throws a magic show at the Variety Theater in Moscow. And building up to this show, he, again, systematically screwing with every single Uh, showrunner. (laughs) Like he screws with the treasurer, the scheduler, um, everything you can think of. Um, You know, he either shows up to them in person and makes illusions that drive them crazy. He disappears them. Um, He causes complete miscommunications between them. So they don't know like what's scheduled and they're all mad at each other. And they're also all threatening to call the authorities on each other too, um, because it's not proper. It's not functioning the way a, a proper, perfect Soviet society or theater should function. Um, so he causes a bunch of turmoil there. And then when he finally gives his performance, and like Kian mentioned before, it's his um, associates. Maybe we can talk a little bit about them. Uh, Behemoth? Mm. <laughs> Behemoth is the cat. Uh, he's portrayed as a really, really fat black cat that can stand on its hind legs and talk and smoke and... <laughs> Do really creepy things. Whips out a Tommy gun. Definitely, yeah. He wears a tie at one point uh, for the ball that we'll get to, but uh, yeah, that's that's Bamith. And um, uh, Azazello is next. He's portrayed as this shorter man in a striped suit, redheaded and fanged, um, and he's pretty cool. He's he's a an assassin like uh, individual that also works for Satan. He's really fun. Um, and then there's a choir master. <laughs> 
Kuraviev. And he's in there, too. Um, so they all come in after finally getting their position in the show situated uh, and, you know, ruining all these people's sanity. Um, they get in and it's a greater Moscow audience. Again, a lot of elites in the uh, uh, in the in the audience. And um, he does a lot of things. He takes off somebody's head again <laughs> or his assistants do and they put it back on. But it's a very creepy scene where, like, not only is the head taken off, but the body is still, like, screaming for its head, give me back my head, give me back my head, and he does that in front of all the audience, and they're horrified, and it gets to the point where they're screaming for him to show mercy, like, you know, Satan, show mercy, but they also think uh, it's still, like, a top-tier act at that point. Uh, So the guy's head is returned to him. He never fully recovers from it, but it happens, and then Satan starts showering down money, on the audience while uh, simultaneously calling every single audience member almost out for their adultery or uh, their imperfection and what they've done in their lives and uh, every single way they, they don't meet um, the Soviet, uh, the Soviet standard. Uh, and it's crazy how fast people, you know, spring forward to pick up this money, uh, which they're very obsessed with being real too. Uh, there's like an emphasis on that, like people checking to see if it's real, people ripping it out of each other's pockets when somebody else gets it first. And it kind of escalates from there to um, say the, the magic show. Uh, he starts giving all of the women in the audience really, uh, you know, uh, extravagant ball gowns. And um, <laughs> then the latest French fashion yeah exactly things you know you're not you're not supposed to have you know why do you why do you need that it's a perfect society everybody works everybody's equal but you know as soon as the money and the dresses come out you can't control yourself um and then when they leave this performance the dresses disappear and of course the money's fake <laughs> and some of them get arrested because it's uh, uh it's viewed as foreign money so he gets them in trouble that way too Um, But it's just, again, another really great scene and a really great satire on the hypocrisy of this society. One of the other uh, pivotal scenes in the book is uh, Satan's ball. One of the interesting things about the background, the way that uh, Bulgakov would bring in elements from uh, real life, there was a, a ball thrown by the American ambassador in Moscow during Bulgakov's life. I believe it was thirty. So this would have been during, during the Great Depression. The, during the Depression. And it was they did all kinds of things, ridiculous things. They had like trees inside and like this these insane decorations. Oh, they, they, they spared no expense. Zebra, yeah. mm-hmm. zebra finches on loan from the Moscow Zoo. It was the insane thing. So he brings in that background to the to Satan's ball and there are all these characters that make an appearance and uh, you know some of them are sort of portrayed to be more evil than others and the one that's really interesting is this woman who it's implied that she was uh, raped and killed the child because she couldn't take care of it the, and Margarita ends up being the hostess at this ball uh, in service to Satan she makes a deal with the devil um, and that's one of the the many uh, references in the book the book to Faust and the whole trope of the deal with the devil. But she asks Satan to 
have mercy on this woman and release her from her punishment from having killed this kid because it wasn't like she had a crime committed against her as well. So there's this, this deep sense of humanism and justice behind all the chaos and antics of the of Satan and his his retinue. And that's one of the things that makes the book so relevant, even though it's so specific to a time and place, is just the these themes of you can't lock people into this inhuman system that doesn't take into account uh, human foibles and, you know, circumstances beyond people's control so but it's it's a a fever dream of a scene and it's a lot of fun also (laughs) yeah and uh yeah that's a great place to go off to just the magic show and the ball alone uh because my next thing that stuck out to me was the amount of horror i don't know why this didn't affect me as deeply as it did now uh even in college i was a major horror fan i loved um I, i mean i still love horror movies but i really really love horror in novels um when it's done well i've grown farther and farther away from being a fan of stephen king but you know the uh, when i pick up a good um horror novel it's it's always great and there are a few scenes in this book that count um again like there's no shortage of chillingly gruesome like decapitations the crucifixion again as we talked about was you know not not just very humanized but also very gory um not like passion of the christ level but you know very believable it wasn't gratuitous yeah it wasn't gratuitous right um nudity flies suffering you know it's uh it's it's a little bit it's much but um and the decapitations it's not just a decapitation i mean it is it describes like how this man is run over by a streetcar what exactly happens to his body they look at his body again and then at the magic show and at the ball i would say maybe even more so at the ball, the historical relevant imagery, uh, like the satanic imagery, you know, flying naked through the sky on a broomstick, which, you know, does happen to Margarita after she sells her soul somewhat to the devil, um, flies through the sky. And there's her uh, another witch who was a maid in her household uh, flying on a pig. <laughs> it was a man that she knew previously, but he turned into a pig. She's flying through the sky. And Margarita, when she gets to the ball, she's, I think, still forced to be naked, wearing a really heavy, uh, it's like a frame and an image, uh, like around her neck. And it kind of forces her to lean forward a little bit. It's very uncomfortable. And people are like fawning over her. She's told by Satan and his associates to make sure that everybody at Satan's ball feels uh, welcome. You know, nod your head, say hi, smile. And, you know, they're all going to adore you, which they do. They all bend down and they all kiss her knees. Um, That's a very big thing at the ball. And she notices that when she gets more into the fever dream feeling, she looks down at her knees and they're actually kind of bruising and and rotting. And then in in addition to that, before the ball, even uh, when she's meeting with Satan and he's telling her about you know, his planned role for her at his ball. He's being rubbed down by the naked uh, assistant, the naked witch, Hella, he has um, in his retinue. And she's rubbing, like, a really gross kind of, like, cream on his knee as well. Uh, so there's just a lot of, like, traditional satanic imagery, you know? Like, it doesn't always make sense. He doesn't explain why everything's there. It's there for your interpretation, 
but it definitely kind of uh, signals back to a lot of conversations we have as Satanists um, about like historical ritual in the woods and the historical imagery around witches and the kind of grotesqueness that comes out um, in, in how the devil was always portrayed. Welcome back to Home Necronomics. This is our second special edition segment that we are doing here. Um, and last time we were joined by the satanic mechanic, and we all got learnt in the field of changing our oil. I know I'm looking forward to saving a couple bucks. I don't know about y'all, but on this edition, um, this was actually the the spawn of the idea, the very first segment um, that was that was you know really thought up, and this is. Number of the Bistro and Number of the Bistro is not only going to make you fucking hungry by the time this is over, hopefully you get a little learn as well. Very similar to the Satanic Mechanic, there's a, a whole bunch of ideas and a whole bunch of energy behind eating better, having fun with it. Uh, and doing it the right way, um, and not necessarily the right way, but going about things the right way in the kitchen. To take us on that journey, uh, we have, um, if you will uh, recognize the voice who joined us on our Walpurgis Knox special, uh, we have Pete joining us, who is also known as Gorgon Ramshead, and he's going to be really taking us to town on a really good dish, um, really from preparation to plate. So I just want to welcome Pete back to Satanic Study Hall, and um, it's time to get learned. Yeah, hey guys, it's great to uh, be here teaching some home necronomics. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, hopefully, yeah. This would be something nice and easy for you to to rustle up and uh, get on your plate, and you can let me know how it goes afterwards as well. So, um, what's on the what's what's in store? Uh, I'm excited. Uh, they lunch here in study hall or at school is shit normally, and uh, maybe if we you know can push the uh, nutritional value of some of this uh, stuff coming out, we can get better food here. So, uh, what you got for us today? After uh, I suppose explain a little bit of inspiration behind me and cooking um yeah i'm going to just teach you how to make a, a really versatile uh kind of pasta sauce i suppose in america you call them marinara sauces uh yeah but yeah a, a good base that you can throw at a load of things that yeah, make shitloads of your food much tastier than out of a packet um and also super easy to make um what about food and food prep and cooking or being in the kitchen what's appealing about that to you how long have you been cooking and is it is it i mean is passion uh, a correct word and you know kind of associating you know your drive for cooking yeah it's a funny one the word passion for it but yeah i'll go into that i mean i've been i've been cooking since i was pretty young my dad was a chef before he retired so you know we always had good food at home unless my mom was cooking um, <laughs> and yeah, always eating around the table and stuff. So I've always kind of loved food, certainly as a kid, but then it's also one of the things that I've struggled with most in my life. Um, so yeah, learn how to cook when I was young, but then there's been periods in my life where food has 
is something that's quite a scary thing. So a bit of background, I suppose, in relation to that is that I'm someone who's suffered a long, long, long term with mental health problems, specifically big time depression with a load of other things thrown in there, but also addiction issues as well. So a lot of people you see certainly nowadays online are posting about food when it comes to mental health and, and addiction and their appetite and how that's something that kind of massively fluctuates and how finding the energy to cook, let alone eat well, it's tough. Definitely I've been sober for around eight months now and I think it's been a real um it's really kickstarted my love and passion for cooking again. So not just for eating, but for actually thinking about what I'm eating and enjoying it. Um, it doesn't have to be something that you do to just function, which I know certainly when I've been struggling, um, you do it just so you can get through the day. You don't really care what you're eating, just a bit of plain bread or whatever. And that doesn't, that doesn't do anything for you. Um, and now I just, I, I, I found this kind of thing to concentrate on and, and love. And I think, what I'd like to do, I think there is to kind of give a bit of inspiration for other people to do that. So I'm no professional. Um, I'm no expert, but I think it's just important to sometimes have that little push to know things are, you know, easy. I don't want to give the impression that cooking comes easy to anyone or patronize those who don't have the energy to cook for themselves most of the time. Um, but I just want to show people there's a bit of joy in cooking. I'm really happy to have found that again through, as I said, kind of roller coaster years of, having no energy to do it yeah my mental health and things not letting me do it so yeah I'm, I'm lucky to have two people to cook for at home that makes a big difference for me i love cooking for other people and even so when i'm feeling a, a bit shit i still have a reason to kind of rustle up something good and yeah it feels good to make a proper meal so while we all know putting good shit into your body is important uh, sometimes it can come with an associated cost uh so on today's dish um are we doing, um, are we reaching kind of deep into our pockets when it comes to meal prep and, and ingredients, or is this something that can be, um, that's, that's kind of light? This is going to take you no time to prep. It's cheap and easy to put together. Um, you can fancy it up with other things and you can spend whatever money you want on it. But um, the whole thing, this is, it's Anyone can do it. You can go just to a regular supermarket. You don't have to run around town to 20 different places spending shitloads of money on, you know, a herb that, you know, a strand of, of your leaf or anything. Um, no, it's just it's just super easy. Um, and prep time is next to nothing. A couple of minutes. All right. Well, I'm already getting hungry. So um, take us away, Pete. I'm, uh, I'm eager to see what you got. Okay, so yeah, let's go down for a basic. And I will, nothing, no magic potions, ingredients. This is nothing to make you into a super Satanist. This is just something that you have always got in your kind of cooking armory to uh, to get you going. So um, yeah, you're going to need equipment wise, you'll need a chopping board. You will need a knife, preferably one that's nice and sharp. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey. Yeah, um, well, Delisle's down with that. <laughs> um, and uh, you'll need uh, just a single pan. Not too massive, but yeah, medium-sized pan. First, you'll need some olive oil. You can use other oil, like a tasteless one, but it's Italian food. So 
to have a nice drop of olive oil in there and you will want in your pan to heat that kind of medium to low heat because you're going to put an onion in it so um you'll need a diced onion so a large onion dicing it so i'm gonna do kind of like suppose the idiot's guide for things but dicing it is chopping it into little squares and while that's oil's heating up you want it yeah alongside your onion you want uh a few garlic cloves as well see yes. i'm a big garlic fan i love a lot of garlic but you can put as much as you want in but let's say just on basics or whatever let's say two decent size um if you're crazy on garlic you can throw in as much as you want but that's down to you um and you'll want to chop that up as well so in your pan your oil should be nicely heated um and yeah you throw both of those in so because it's on a low heat that means that your onions aren't going to cook too quickly and they're going to go nice and soft and sweet if you have it on a high heat they will just burn which can be fun you can caramelize them up and and put them on the hot dog but it kind of that's not what you want for this um so that'll probably take about 10 minutes and you want to keep stirring at that because if you don't, again, stuff gets stuck, stuff gets burnt, and then you'll have half overcooked onion and half raw onion. And they're around nice and easy. And then the fanciest herbs you will need in this, and they can be dried. You do not need fresh. This is like super easy cooking. As I said, you don't need to like go and buy a packet of basil or basil. Um, yeah, you don't need, and, to, you don't uh, need to stop by the farm directly and, and, and harvest yeah, them fresh. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and just, you know, spend a load and then throw away half. Um, so, yeah, you're going to need some uh, some basil, some oregano. Again, you know, this is my English pronunciation, guys. Probably my <laughs> Italian as well. Yeah, oregano and basil um, and, uh, and some dried thyme as well. So in there, while that's uh, all softening up, all you need to throw in there is a teaspoon of of dried basil, teaspoon of oregano, um, and I probably put about half a teaspoon of t- uh, dried thyme in it. Just mix that up in there, leave it for a minute or two, whack some salt and pepper in as well um, after that. And that's like really is as technical it is on the kind of base of like dry stuff that's going in. Um after this point, you can be a little fancy if you do have something like uh, some red wine around. And if you throw a glug in there, once everything's soft and, and put together, um, and then let it cook for about 10 minutes, that wine gives a nice little extra kick for that Italian edge okay. to your sauce. It's not essential, but it's a nice little addition uh, if you've got it around, especially dead wine. I mean, there's not a lot of people out there who don't finish a bottle of wine, but sometimes there's some dregs left. Dregs are just as good if you're cooking. But if you've got dregs of red wine left, keep it. You can cook with that stuff because no good to drink. But you might as well, yeah, let's not waste anything. Um, and then as well, before we add any kind of more wet ingredients, um, you can, this sauce, you can do so much with. So you can make just, if you just want to keep it as it is, you can just have a, a basic tomato marinara spaghetti sauce. You want to get fancy, this is the time to add other ingredients. So you can whack some olives in there. If you want to make a bolognese, you get some mints and throw it in. That can be meat mints or soy mints, whatever. Um, so yeah, it's versatile uh, in that respect. And then you can use it as as a base for your for lasagna, for cannelloni, for 
a load of yeah ratatouille tons of things it's got yeah all these uses but say if we're just going to go for the basic tomato sauce we're going to yeah carry on now we don't need to put any other ingredients it's not essential it's still going to taste good and then you throw in two tins of chopped tomatoes and you uh you let that bubble mix it all together let it bubble for about 10-15 minutes and you've got yourself a tasty but really really easy sauce boil yourself up some some pasta uh, again, doesn't need to be fancy fresh pasta or anything, just some dried stuff that you've got in the cupboard. Throw it all together. Once it's gone for that 15 minutes, you let it cook. It thickens up. You've got that water evaporating. Don't put a lid over the top of it. Just let some of that disappear. So it's kind of got a bit of thickness to it. So it's not nice and, you know, it's not too watery. And then wait all together. And then, as I said, boil your pasta. That's going to take you another, what, less than 10 minutes. Mix it in and you've got something for you. If you uh, yeah, whack some cheese on the top of it, whatever your choice is. Um, again, you don't have to go out and get the finest Parmesan that's out there. Just something that you're going to enjoy. And and you've got a meal. Absolutely. Like that. that sounds fucking great. Like, especially now, if you were to suggest a specific type of pasta for, for that, what, what would you suggest? Well, so we've got all our, you know, got our personal favorites. I love Tagliatelle. And I really love like things like uh, penne and stuff as well. I know that, say, having a kid, something like penne <laughs> or fusilli that, yeah, twisted stuff, just stuff they can he can pick up with his hands. He loves that stuff. It's a bit more of a chore with some tagliatelle or spaghetti. And then it's a hell of a lot more mess for you. Yeah, I mean, I love pasta, full stop, in general. So, yeah. And as I said, this is something that, you know, to get you stuff out of your cupboards um, as well, you can just, you can do whatever you want. You're less than half an hour, you've got an entire meal. That's kind of the point of the kind of, yeah, what I want to talk about and teach people to do and kind of give that bit of enthusiasm that we don't need to be teaching gourmet stuff. You don't need to be doing that. This is everyday thing and that you can still get home from work and you're exhausted, but you still got something that you can appreciate on your plate and maybe enjoy and get a bit of that dopamine up that we all need. Can you let me know more about Gorgon Ramshead? Uh, I know we've um, you've given me a little bit of background to it offline, but I'm really eager um, to see and hear um, about the Gorgon Ramshead project and um, what might be in store when it comes to that. Sure. So Gorgon Ramshead was a kind of name, little character in my head that I came up with the kind of keep me enthusiastic about doing this and, and, and cooking. Obviously it's a little twist on a certain famous British chef who likes to swear a lot. And I think he's as much of a wanker as anyone else that, you know, does or <laughs> that he thinks other people are. Um, but uh, yeah, his name worked well for my pun. <laughs> yes, it did. But, uh, yeah. So yeah, I, 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 I post stuff pretty much most days on, um, on, my yeah on the gorgon ramshead uh instagram it's just at gorgon ramshead yeah as i said it's just to kind of give my self a bit of uh, a push but also that other people can just kind of physically see what i'm doing and how easy that certain things that kind of look fancy or are you know think how easy they are to make um i'm doing that yeah constantly but as i said it, it is something that i wanted to to do just to just to show other people in my position is certainly i think with being in communities like the tst sober faction which has been a, a kind of massive help with me with my kind of journey through sobriety but also as a support network that 
I could I could share with other people that who are openly struggling or openly asking these questions and just to give kind of a little bit of um, inspiration for them, really, it's just as much for them as it is for me. Uh, I don't know. A lot, some of our listeners will, will definitely recognize the fact that you've posted <laughs> a lot of beautiful looking plates uh, on our discord goat farm. And one of the first things, oh my God, that's the, that looks so fancy. And while I'm sure some of them were, most of the time your response would be, actually, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's, re- it's really not. Okay, so maybe before I take a photo, I'll take like one minute <laughs> to kind of make it look a little presentable. It is nice when you get a plate. Certainly when you go to a restaurant, you know, the first bites with the eye and everything. Um, but it's not essential. But it is so much easier than I think a lot of people think. And I think that's, that's what, you know, kind of, I hate about the kind of social media world of world of food. Sometimes it's kind of so over the top and it's about that person wanting credit for things. I don't want any credit for what, you know, for, for cooking stuff and just, you know, for following recipes and, and making something kind of look nice. I just want to show it's not that hard. I mean, also the Gorgon Ramsay thing, it's not about this whole kind of world of, eating super healthy and superfoods and fad dieting and fucking magic potions and, and whatever to kind of make you into this thing. Um, <laughs> um, it, it's just about like, as I said, enjoying the food you eat. Like I'm not going to go out and say you need to kind of drink a pint of lard or whatever. And, you know, to, to enjoy food, you know, or say that you can only eat kind of forage berries and things. So are there, um, do you have any shout outs or special thanks or, um, anything outside of the um, Gorgon Ramshead project on Instagram, which by the way is at Gorgon Ramshead. Um, if you want to follow, um, that and check out everything that Pete's got to offer with that, um, any, any special thanks, anything like that? Definitely shout out to everyone on the goat farm for keeping me sane. <laughs> you make a world of difference. Um, uh, definitely, as I said earlier, but the TSD sober faction um, and Joe and John who do an amazing job there. Certainly since it's all become official and massive influx of people, but you really help people's like lives and, and everything and no superstition, the TSD way. And uh, I'm massively grateful. And it's been a massive inspiration for me getting off my ass and and doing this and, and, and getting enthusiasm for cooking and stuff and kind of doing this for them as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, oh, and shout out to, to Brian. You're going to have a lot of fun for the next episode. Um, Brian is forever entertaining and he'll put me to shame next episode with his energy, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you're, you're definitely in for a treat. That guy knows what he's doing. Um, and shout out to you guys as well for having me. And uh, I look forward to doing more home necronomics lessons and yeah, schooling some people. Yes. But luckily, luckily beginners class with me guys. So I don't grade too severely. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Cause this uh, getting back into the swing of cooking uh, might be, might be kind of a journey for some people, myself included. <laughs> I, I can, I can, I can grill, I can grill and cook a steak like a motherfucker, but I can definitely afford to uh, become a little bit more creative and potentially a little bit more healthier in the kitchen. 
Um, so thank you so much, Pete, for being here. We look forward to having uh, you back on many, many more home necronomics um, and number of the bistro segments. So on that note, thank you everybody for hanging out with us in home necronomics. Hail Satan, Pete, and hail Satan hail to Satan. all of our listeners. <laughs> You're the Antichrist. What? Yeah, that's what you are. You are the motherfucking Antichrist. Hail Satan. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. Um, are there any like particularly scary scenes that stuck out to you? The, the not scary necessarily, but the one line from Azazello. Uh, that I just absolutely love because it makes me chuckle every single time is, uh, and I don't remember which characters he's around, but he's around a, a woman and she's, she's naked. And I think it might've been Margarita and she's kind of freaking out about him seeing her naked. And he's like, madam, I have seen naked women before. I've even seen them without their skin. You know, <laughs> it makes me really laugh every time. <laughs> In the way things are sort of clinically described, I think you can kind of discern a bit of uh, Bulgakov's former career as a doctor. Oh, and definitely. Particularly being a doctor during the Civil War, he probably saw some really gnarly stuff. Um, so, I mean, it's just kind of one of those other things that he, he brings into it. The You know, as much as the book is kind of like this magical realism fantasy thing, there are always these notes of... Uh, realism and reality to sort of ground you along the way oh definitely um yeah i was liking it uh likening it back a little bit to the film the witch uh directed by robert eggers again and it did kind of like remind me not only the traditional imagery but just i don't know the way it was done and then coming back to that very historically aesthetic time um I would love a, a master and margarita film directed by Robert Eggers. I would, <laughs> that would oh, be that great. That would be fantastic. It would be yeah. very, very cool. Um, so yeah, I, I do think it's my personal opinion that if you're a Satanist and also a horror fan, this also will do something for you in that realm as well. And this is again, I don't know if everybody will agree with me. I'm not a love story fan, but I was moved by the love story here. Um, I think that the characters, both the master and Margarita, have enough like appeal to justify their love, even though it's pretty immediate. immediate and I did pull the, the quote that's going to explain that a little bit. But uh, yeah, I think the characters have their own individual appeal enough, even though they're not even in... The, Margarita is. The master is a little bit more limited, and I think it was really cool how he did that. Like the, the love story protagonists here don't even have to take up the majority of the novel to leave that level of impact with their love story. Um, so uh, this is the master referring to Margarita. Uh, love leaped out in front of us like a murderer in an alley leaping out of nowhere and struck us both at once as lightning strikes, as a finished knife strikes. She, by the way, insisted afterwards that it wasn't so, that we had, of course, loved each other for a long, long time without knowing each other, ever having seen each other. Uh, and that's just kind of like the tip of the iceberg. I was really captivated by the master's uh, retelling of him and Margarita's story uh, while he's in the insane asylum. I, I think even though it's immediate and a love at first sight situation, I think it was written really well. 
you know, I felt that way about, I guess, friends that I've met in the past and certain, you know, paramours in the past, too, who I'm still really good friends with. I also felt that way about the death of Stalin, the film, when I first saw the trailer. <laughs> um, and I do overall think, even with the down the line, um, selling your soul to the devil or to whoever, uh, you know, for the chance to get your love back. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I think it's done really well. I think it's written really well. What do you think? Well, I mean, the fact that he, he writes the the master and Margarita, the characters as uh, he, he doesn't present them without blemish. Mm -hmm. And that makes them more relatable. It makes them more human. It's not this sort of perfect, flawless love story with these characters who, who don't do petty things or doubt themselves or doubt each other, but they come through at the end. And I think that's what makes it more real and more relatable. And it's, it's just not, it's not saccharine, you know, it's not one of these things where it's, Oh, we just love each other through all this stuff. And there's no, there's never a moment of doubt, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it reads like real people dealing with hard stuff. Uh, yeah. Like I particularly like where he's in this insane, like the master is in the insane asylum himself, which is like also hilarious. Cause he's got the keys. He's just, he's got the keys off of some, uh, assistant, um, or some doctor or some guard. And he's just kind of making his rounds in the insane asylum. And, uh, Ivan, the poet from the very beginning who witnessed the decapitation of Berlioz, the critic, uh, he's in the insane asylum and he, he basically ends up in there after trying for like half the book at that point to catch the devil unsuccessfully. He's running around Moscow claiming that, you know, this foreigner who is Satan, uh, Woland and his, you know, his cat and his little short man with his striped suit and his red hair have, have murdered the critic and they've like, you know, they're going to do more and they're evil and they're crazy and they have magic and nobody believes him. So he gets sent to the madhouse and he meets the master there who's room hopping with his keys. And it's there that the master, uh, you know, tells the story or the meeting of, of him and Margarita. And in that, I think it, is um, a summer. So the master is basically uh, an author. I think he starts out as a linguist and a historian, and then he tries his hand at writing. And he's, again, kind of in a similar situation to Ivan. He's writing a book about uh, Jesus, who is referred to as Yeshua in the book, and Pontius Pilate. Um, and he's also turns down. He, he works so hard on this novel that he's super passionate about. He has his lover, Margarita, who they're both, you know, pretty trans, uh, they're pretty fixated on each other. And they both know at that point or have a feeling that their love has even at that point, like transcended, uh, you know, space and time and dimensions and all of it. And, the, you know, in that time, she's so, uh, she's so supportive of him writing his novel about these two historical figures who, you know, they're documented, they're real, but he sends it off to the literary elite of Moscow and they reject it for the same reason that Berlioz at the beginning is rejecting Ivan's poem. Um, it's just, you know, it's not enough that you disavow, uh, Jesus or Pilate or just any figure that we determine is like an enemy of the state at that point. It's not enough that you disavow them. You know, you can't even insinuate that they existed for one second. And he gets blacklisted um, really bad. And then he becomes kind of obsessed with his blacklisting and loses faith in the work, loses faith in writing, loses faith in living, um, goes into a really bad uh, depression. And Margarita is still there for him but now this kind of like really 
romantic and well-written love nest that they have together is just, it's like a wilting flower. Um, and then he disappears. Um, he, he goes crazy and that's how he ends up in the madhouse. And he's kind of sitting there hoping that she'll forget him, uh, forever, but that's not what happens. And that's why I, I think, uh, it's such a good love story. It points to him not being perfect in that assessment, him not being perfect in that, action at all uh like he he ghosted her on the most extreme level and even though i think he knew deep down it would leave her in a lot of pain to do that um you know he still did it and hoped for the best and then uh fast forward a little bit in the novel we see her and i think it's about a year or close to a year uh after he disappears it might just be half a year i'm not i don't remember exactly but you know a significant period of time and she's in her apartment that she has with her husband she's married not to the master and she's not very fond of her husband either and it kind of reads like it's going to be a filler chapter a little bit um it's it's just her you know really upset and miserable and, and wallowing and you do feel for her um but she still has her agency. She still tries to keep up appearances, even though she's pretty, you know, suicidal over this and talks about it openly. And she goes out for a walk by herself uh, and she ends up on this bench, like just, you know, thinking over and over to herself. You know, I, I thought I was going to forget him. I thought something was going to happen today. I woke up not wanting to die and I, I would give anything to see him again. And that's when Azazello, who's one of the devil's associates, appears to her and starts to make the offer, um, you know, to her to, to host this ball. And, uh, you know, it, it's a pretty interesting conversation. It's not just a filler chapter. It's, it's just really hilarious. Um, she knows from the get-go that there's something really, really wrong with this man and that he works for really awful, sinister people and that if she says yes to him, something horrible is probably going to happen to her. Uh, like, as me and Kian were discussing earlier, it kind of sounds like he's trying to pimp her out a little bit. And she's still, even though she's sassy and has agency, she's just on the tinge of, like, even though I know what he's doing, I mean, I'm, I'm probably still going to say yes if it, there's even a chance that I can see the man I love again. And um, you, you can see Azazello at that point, even, like, the back and forth is great because he's becoming frustrated with her, too. Uh, just just say yes or no. I don't even care if you reject it at this point. Just do what you're going to do. Say what you're going to say. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of a creepy situation, but it's also really satirical at the same time. And it's a good element to the the love that that exists between her and the master. Yeah, it's it's written really well. She has a lot of agency. She has a lot of personality. Um and one of the things I love about it in the end is um, she's happy with having made a, a deal with Satan. Like it's not, it doesn't work out poorly. There's no like trickery or anything like that. She made a deal and it was uh, fulfilled in good faith and she's good with it. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they get the master Margarita get peace in the end. They get to be together and, um, Satan is depicted as sinister, but he also holds up his end of the, his bargains. You know, he's not oh, no, depicted I, as this character that's going to cheat you in the end, you know. Yeah, he's, I he's love that about it, too. It totally, yeah. like, takes the trope of deal with the devil and the ultimate, you know, gruesome tragedy that is met uh, at the end of that, and it flips it on its head. That's a really great point, too. I don't know, Johnny. Would you take the risk? Would you roll the dice and kind of deal with the devil? Fuck yeah.
<laughs> What's your minimum price? Uh, right now? Probably like five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Veronica, you? Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I'm just, I'm just curious. Around the room real quick. Would you cut a deal with the devil if, if he I, popped up if right I, now? If I got what the master and Margarita got at the end of the of the novel, I would probably uh, cut a deal with the devil. L? I already did. How the hell do you think I wound up on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> My answer is yes, absolutely. Um, fuck it, YOLO, right? Uh, let's see what happens. What about you, Ken? Uh, yes, absolutely. And I know exactly what I would ask for. Um Hopefully it's, a Lamborghini. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't have to fast uh, for it. <laughs> fuck that. Um, no, I, even though I uh, went to his house uh, once, I never got to meet uh, Giger. And I would sell my soul to uh, be able to spend one day painting with the master. All right. That would nice. that would be my price. Hail Giger. Well, Beelzebub, yeah. if you're listening, uh, <laughs> you've got some deals to cut. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. All right. Back to regular scheduled programming. Enough of my fucking tangents. There's uh, my favorite uh, quote in the whole book uh, right toward the end. Matthew Levi, the uh, uh, apostle of Jesus, he's a character in the parts of the book that are set in uh, the time of Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. But he uh, sh- shows up in the end. And it's kind of interesting too, because it's kind of implied that God and Satan are kind of sort of working together to make sure that justice is done for these two characters. Yeah. I love that um, about this too. It's almost like it's kind of, um, it's like trying, everybody does their part. Yeah, it's trying to say that, you know, the devil rejects the idea that the enemy of my enemy is uh, my friend. You know, like it's kind of rejecting or like, you know, even though these two elements that I might not like are against each other, it doesn't mean that I'm going to pick one and not do the right thing. So even though like Moscow and Russia at large are totally rejecting Christ, it doesn't mean that I'm going to accept the bullshit they're doing on their own terms. You know, I'm going to exactly directly repudiates the Hegelian dualistic bullshit that uh, Marx and Engels based a lot of their stuff on. It's saying that the world doesn't work that way. Exactly. It's not met this Manichaean duality of, well, if it's not this, then it's that. There's so much in a, in a human world, there's a lot of gray. And and that kind of plays into this, this quote that I was leading to where uh, Satan is talking to Matthew Levi and he says, uh, where would all your good be if evil did not exist? What would the earth look like without shadows? Objects cast shadows and people, too. Here's the shadow from my sword. But there are also shadows from trees and living creatures. Or would you strip the entire globe of trees and living things to fulfill your fantasy of basking in barren light? You were a fool. And it's that image of basking in barren light. That's when when people get on this thing of uh, believing in some bullshit utopia. It, that's barren light. People cast shadows. We are imperfect, fallible creatures. And to say that we are perfectible is, uh, it's a fantasy. It's nonsense. And so 
that direct repudiation of that having a world of pure light is necessarily a, a good and just and right thing that that warms my shriveled little heart <laughs> oh yeah it, it, and it definitely does and um i think you know why this should be uh so important i mean i think tst has deemed it pretty important but why it should continue to be is you know this is like a portrayal of satan who who not only gets that but who's also i you know like we were just talking about he's willing to kind of reach towards i guess what would represent the light in this case which is uh yeshua or jesus being unjustifiably um uh crucified and you know matthew levi who's pretty righteous um and he's even reaching down like you know well i could rule the world you know if you make god disappear i could but why would i you know want that why would you want the flip side of that either um it's really dynamic uh it's different can yeah, i ask a question the spaces in between yeah shoot um, I don't mean to interrupt your your wonderful book review with my stupidity, and I just fucked up another line before I said this, and I just want everybody out there to know that I had to do it again. But um, anyway, to my question, I'm obviously not a history buff, and I don't know anything about the Soviet Union or the history of the Soviet Union. Now, does somebody who reads this book, are they going to be able to understand what they're talking about? I mean, is it easy to read for somebody like me? I think that's a very good question. Um, I think, in my opinion, the answer, the short answer is no. Um, but I will say that if you, before you read this novel, you read like a base, a very base uh, short synopsis of... Um, what the culture was like in the Soviet Union and, and what it was like to live there. If you know, like the base cultural uh, culture around um, just the amount of censorship and uh, the amount of like a persecution that went on uh, during Stalin's reign, I think it will be definitely readable. Um, but I, I would recommend going in with some background knowledge of like, that historical time period before you read the book. Um, I don't think you have to do extensive reading though. Like I've mentioned the death of Stalin a few times here. It it is my favorite movie and it's again, another Soviet satire. Uh, I think you can watch that movie and maybe not pick up on every single historical detail or reference that's in it, but I think you'll still find it funny. I think like it, it, and that's a little bit different because it's a film and it's a different medium. So you're able to see the actors and and what they're doing and how they're responding to what's going on around them. Um, But uh, I think you'll pick up very fast on the, like what's going on and like the consensus of, of everybody, which is if you step out of line, you are in, in complete, fear for your life uh, because something is not going in the order that your state is dictating it. It goes in. And Johnny, I'm glad you asked that too. Um, I think it's a great question. It's, it's a fantastic question. Um, I mean, just like, you know, Veronica was just talking about with, you know, cultural references at the time period and everything like that, as far as, you know, the condition and how everything was like, I've just listening. And I know this is probably the quietest I've ever been in any episode, just soaking this all in because I only did a little bit of research on this because I wanted the, you know, the meat and potatoes 
because of the knowledge I gained from this book to come from y'all. And I want to read this book. Yeah, me too. Uh, and, me and, yeah, I, I'm definitely just, just from seeing, you know, you know, we've got, we've got Kian over here on the, um, you know, on the study hall webcam, um, who's joining us, but, uh, just seeing his, you know, his face light up during some of his favorite parts and that last quote that Kian read and just some of the yeah, passion and the, and the lessons and, you know, what, whether or not, you know, it, it seemed like, you know, their version of Satan was, you know, working for the Soviets at the time. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, it's, it's, there's just like Kian had mentioned too we've taken all the the time period and the references out. I just, it sounds like there's just so many you know good stories and lessons here it's uh it's definitely piqued my interest what do you think kian of johnny's question it's, what do you think so there's a lot in it that is so deeply come that so deeply comes from the time and the place and the culture and all that thing there's a lot of references in it that i'm like i know there's more to that than i know you know, rather than like reading some annotated copy that's got, you know, 17 miles of footnotes and all that kind of thing, you know, occasionally I'll go back and do a little bit more research here and there and pick up some more stuff. But it, it's so, there are two things about it. It's so rich and so dense with so much imagery that even if you don't get everything, there's so much you can still get out of it because it's just packed. And you know, a lot of it's just the other, the other part of it that makes it accessible in my mind, even if you don't understand the, the historical context, context is that so much of it is so deeply human that it is relevant, you know, to anybody's experience. You know, there are so many times, you know, as a, as a Satanist that you look around at the world and go, I'm living in a madhouse. This is insane. What are all these people doing? This is bullshit. There's so much injustice, you know, and that resonates even if you don't know all the background information, I think, in the, in the book. It's just so full of little human touches that that comes through even if you don't understand the context as well as uh, as you might. I completely agree. And then um, also a, a last point before we move on to um, you know our, our wrap-up of this. As a Satanist, if you strip the Soviet Union, because I was – literally just thinking about this as you guys were talking, but if you strip the Soviet Union or the historical fiction or any kind of piece of that out of it, and as a Satanist, if you really enjoy satanic imagery and the aesthetic and, um, again, like as I was saying before, like some of the horror, I think you can get a lot of that out of it too. Um, I mean, it shocked me. I was reading parts of the book and I was like, I don't remember how – how like intense this was, how gory it was at times. You know, this is better than a lot of movies I've sat down to watch to purposely be scared by. Um, I think it's a lot more entertaining. I think it th- it makes you think a lot more, uh, even if you're not completely understanding every single historical reference. If you're a Satanist who's just gung-ho about any kind of satanic imagery or portrayal I, I think it's for you i mean it's got fantasy too and it's got you know the occult in it as oh, well definitely so yeah. mm-hmm. and i think it's got i think it's got you know, i don't want to use a corny cliche but i mean it seems like it's got everything mm-hmm. something for everybody you know one of the questions really i was going to ask does. is if if this were like remade if the book were kind of took place in in our kind of modern geopolitical society or even more of a capitalistic structure it sounds like it would still work because the underlying themes would still be the same do you agree or oh, definitely zuckerberg's head would be like lying on a on a train track somewhere <laughs> after being <laughs> taken off by a streetcar um i uh i think that's totally plausible yeah uh bringing it forward to 
uh, now as kind of a corollary to that question, um, I was listening to the preamble that you, you, Johnny and uh, Bill did before the, uh, the musical journey and talking about behemoth in the, the band in Poland and all the stuff they're dealing with. And, you know, I mean, behemoth is, I doubt the band, it's probably not a direct reference to the master Margarita, but it also wouldn't surprise me if it was seeing Poland having thrown off communist totalitarianism and walking right into Catholic totalitarianism. It keeps it relevant. It doesn't matter what the overarching ideology is. It's saying all people have to be this way. And if you're not, then you're an enemy of the people, you know? So I think, I think you could very well uh, bring the, the story forward to contemporary Poland, for example, set it there under the current censorship that's going on, even though Poland has a clause in its constitution about free speech, you know, they're still creating this ideology in conjunction with the church that says, you can't do this. You can't be this way. You can't express this. And that's, just, it, it, you know, you don't have to be a, a black metal musician or, or whatever to run afoul of that. You can just be existing as a, as a gay person in Poland and now you're in trouble, you know? So I think it remains relevant and it could very well, it could happen here as they don't say <laughs> well, as people happen. like to think. Yeah, it could happen. I would say it is. I would say just the amount you know? of censorship that's, um, you know, befallen us in, in recent years. Um, I definitely saw an influx of it, uh, you know, during 2000, 14. I even know that uh, shortly after 9-11, there was a very big period of that as well that was spurred from, uh, you know, a really traumatic event. But that didn't mean that, you know, that amount of censorship and, and lockdown had to um, infringe on people's rights. But it does. Um, it's so relevant. Uh, yeah, no, thank you so much for bringing up Poland, Kian. That's like a, a very relevant um part of this. And I think, I don't know, don't get me wrong, but I think uh, Bulgakov would be very, um, maybe he wouldn't be proud necessarily, but I think it would do him some good to know that people are still reading his literature and using it to, you know, <laughs> learn about the historical tendencies that tend to repeat themselves and, and maybe, uh, you know, inspire people to do something about it before the worst of the worst can happen. Um, and the last point I kind of want to make, because I think this is important uh, to Satanists, and I, I think it's a, I'm happy it's on their recommended reading list, because I think it's something that a lot of Satanists can learn from, is the, it's not necessarily a, it kind of, it's not pro-Christian, but it's definitely not demonizing uh, Christianity, or if you want to fill it with any set ideology that is Demon, uh, demonized at any point, you know, in in the grand spectrum of things. Um, but there's a critique of atheism or a cautionary tale towards atheists, and I would even make the argument that it could be towards Satanists as well. And we are atheists, like, you know, <laughs> bottom line, we are. It's a cautionary tale, uh, and it, it mocks a common fool's or a fool society's tendency uh, to attempt to destroy, deny, and erase anything a collective body designates as threatening or evil. 
Um, in this case, it was not enough for the Soviet Union to disavow the power and authority of Christianity, but instead to take the concept so far as to deny the entire existence of two documented historical figures. Um, this arrogant attitude masquerading as social progress leads to the mass neglect of reality, as well as to the persecution of individuals brave enough to think and create freely. And I do believe, like, in my heart, if Satanism has a chance or this particular genre or brand of Satanism has a chance, um, I think we we do uh, need to not repeat history and that societal tendency to just pick one thing to completely demonize to the point where we're erasing it from existence or trying. Um, I don't think we want to be the flip side of that evil coin. Um, so I like it. I mean, as a very prominent atheist, and I have been since I was 13, I'm still able to read a novel like this and you know, see the critique of a bunch of staunch atheists as, as really funny, uh, and recognize the, the foolishness that led to the genocide of, you know, 50 million people and counting. So it's really important, not just for atheists, not just for Satanists, but for anybody. I think right now though, it's a, it's a really good read for any Satanist. So we can, you know, kind of, uh, kind of kick off with what we started here. Um, I think it's really, educational and it's a great book everybody read it it is a fantastic book i do think uh it's one of the 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 best books written in the 20th century has he written any other novels besides this one i don't know has he can (laughs) yeah he wrote some other works and what's bizarre is the uh some of them uh stalin personally had censored and some of them stalin absolutely loved so it was this bizarre, like personal decision, like what was acceptable and what wasn't. Um, he's uh, he worked in a theater for a long time, so and that's where a lot of the the reality of how he depicts the variety theater in the book comes from. But um, he would write these plays, and some of them would be rejected, and some of them wouldn't, and and. Uh, you know, one of the themes in the or or occurrences in the book is that the master burns the book that he's writing about Jesus and Pilate. Um, right. After he gets Bulgakov blacklisted. Burned. Yeah. Well, Bogakov, that's from his own life. He burned yeah. his manuscript of the master master of Margarita and eventually uh, rewrote it. And his his wife, his Margarita who was actually uh, named Yelena uh, spent years after he died uh, editing it, putting it together, trying to get it uh, published even in a censored form and all that kind of thing. And that's one of the great lines of the, of the the book uh, when Satan magically reproduces the master's manuscript of his book, he says the line manuscripts don't burn. And that's, that became a, a great dissident sort of rallying cry in the Soviet Union uh, when the when the Master Margarita was circulated in the Soviet Union for a long time. It was uh, in a form called samistat, which is where people would uh, type it out themselves, hand type the entire thing so that they could have a copy and share it with other people because it was censored; it wasn't allowed. Um, and his manuscript survived. It was treasured by people and, and they went, they put themselves at, uh, 
mortal risk to keep this thing going and uh, keep it alive. And so, yeah, it led, I don't believe in an afterlife, but it would be nice to, if one existed, to believe that Bulgakov was smiling about his eventual victory over Stalinism and that entire system. Yeah, definitely. And manuscripts don't burn. I mean, you're right. That's like a fantastic rallying cry against book burning, censorship, black being blacklisted for expression, and then in their case, being murdered often um, just for expressing anything that you know the governing body doesn't agree with. Um, all right, thank you so much, Kian. This was awesome. Oh, you're very welcome. Yes, thank, thank you for you. the thank you very much. It was awesome. <laughs> yes, hail Satan. That was Satan. fucking great. I'm I'm signing up, and uh, I think I'm going to turn this into some material to read on my break at work now. Hell yeah, yeah. Chip away at it little by little. Now I think we're at that point. Um, let's rate it. Uh, we generally do for our music and our books that we review on a five pentagram scale. And uh, Kian, we'll start with you. So what would your official rating be of the Master and Margarita out of five pentagrams? Oh, it's absolutely five out of five for me. This is this is the the best satanic literature, in my opinion, the best best satanic book. It, it embodies the the um, ethos and the morals and the ethics that I uh, believe in. And but in a way that isn't preachy it's fun it's wild it's accessible yeah it's just fantastic i love the book i've I've, this my uh third or fourth go around with it now and it won't be the last so five out of five veronica what say you i have to agree with every single thing he just said there it's five out of five it is entertaining um, it jumps around. It never sits still. There's so much energy. It's beautifully translated. I mean, it's like so poetic. There are things that you pull out of this. And even my my second time reading, and and you put it beautifully, it will not be just my second time reading it. Um, it's just gorgeous. Uh, it's a gorgeously written novel. And then when you read about the history, too, that went into it, and the fact that, you know, it took the piss out of like one of the most evil authoritarians in history um i don't really think it it gets much better i think it needs a little bit more recognition as a satanic book um i think people who start satanic book clubs need to give it a little bit more love speak of the devil's great we love speak of the devil we love the happy satanist we love that base literature but this is a great work of symbolic fiction and i i do think that every satanist should read it five out of five pentagrams You're damn right. Ah, awesome. <laughs> well, thank you both so much. That was great. Uh, and again, um, check it out. And that's why we do these book reviews is to, you know, put, you know, put a perspective, uh, not just us, but, you know, we have Ken here, here in study hall, put a unique Satanist perspective on Satanist material. Uh, and I think Veronica said it best, you know, that, that TST suggested reading list is rather long and there is some good shit on there. Um, I also suggest if you haven't listened to it already, Review our episode with Stu DeHaan. I believe it's titled Stu DeHaan Stops by Study Hall. Uh, he made some really good suggestions as far as uh, places to start and really, you know, and key books to read on your journey uh, through Satanism. So he also made some really good uh, recommended reading suggestions about I, I believe a, a lot of them were about the Russian Revolution itself, too. So that's that's also super interesting. You're goddamn right. 
Um, all right, so we're gonna move on. Uh, at this point, we're just gonna quickly touch on our social media because I know the bell's about to ring. Uh, the easiest way, as always, to find us on any form of social media is at satanicstudyhall.com because that's where we have everything compiled and compiled in one place for everybody. Um, new website, we'll try to keep it as up to date as possible. Uh, always open to suggestions, but yes, go to satanicstudyhall.com to just check out everything that we do, stay up on the latest happenings in class. Uh, beyond that you can search us on facebook or instagram just search satanic study hall uh same thing on twitter but uh, you can at us at at satanic sh where both the s's and the h are capitalized we are on youtube where all of our non-copyright infringe material is courtesy of father al um so you can check us out on there and give us uh i guess i'm a youtuber now so like and subscribe heathens um so yeah we're on there our very first Twitch live stream uh, video game journey is going to begin for our supporters on Patreon. Uh, that's happening very soon. Um, and speaking of Patreon, you can support the podcast uh, up to three different membership tiers. First one is $3.33 a month. Second would be $6.66, followed by $20 a month. As I always say, the super fucking satanic level. You got it. Um, so thank you to everybody who's currently a contributor to Satanic Study Hall. Uh, we fucking love you. Um, and hail you for supporting this journey over the past year. And for anybody else who's considered contributing, um, thank you for that. Um, we just were very humbled by the support that we get on there. And we try to keep it fresh with, you know, fun episodes and just kind of more relaxed, non-Satanist focused content where you get to know us a little more than you would normally on our main episodes. Uh, I can't think of any other social media that's really, you know, relevant. We're talking about the website. Again, our email is satanicstudyhall at gmail.com. Um, I think we are at the shout outs and wrapping it up phase. So, Johnny, I, uh, me and you and Al, or you and Al and I, shit, I'm in school. I should speak proper. Sure. Um, we just, I think this is the most quiet we've ever been on any of our episodes, but with a huge payoff at the end. Definitely. What do you oh, think? Yeah. Yes. I think it was, uh, it was definitely, you know, it was informative. It was amazing. And I enjoyed every minute of it. And oh. I asked an awesome question. Yes, you did. <laughs> oh, me. Hell me. Hashtag hell Team me. Johnny. Fuck yeah. All I can say is hail Veronica and Kian, because I, I was trying to look up, a, I obviously couldn't read it all, before tonight and like i couldn't find one description one synopsis of this book that i could understand like it was all like one paragraph like it's this it's this it's this and kudos to both of you for for not only handling but but mastering this book and and it's it's message and it was amazing i'm i hope to get around to uh being able to thoroughly uh read it and uh enjoy it in the same way you both have someday Oh, thank you. Uh, I don't want to call out anybody but you guys for diligently listening to me. Nerd ramble as you do how many times a week, year, minute, you know, like it's just all the time. Um, so thank you guys. And thank you so much, Kian, again for being here. Um, I also want to shout out maybe any, uh, not just artists, but anybody who's uh, struggling through expression right now, anybody being persecuted in any way, whether it's here, whether it's overseas, um, definitely, whether it's in Poland or any situation uh, that can be, um, you know, compared 
to the society fraught with censorship and oppression that this book uh, accurately portrays. So um, shout out to you guys and don't stop. Um, don't stop creating and don't stop saying what you have to say regardless. I think there's one more small incremental point I promised that I didn't touch on was that there's a lot of artists, the ones who get, uh, you know, screwed with uh, by the devil, who come to the realization that their art is really horrible because they towed the acceptable line and didn't believe in an ounce of what they were creating. They were doing it out like to accumulate wealth, fame, survival. Um, you know, they went with the mob rule and they ended up hating themselves for it. So that's also a really great part of the book that I like. But um, shout out to everybody who doesn't submit. Um, shout out to you guys. Ken, what about you? I just want to uh, shout out you guys for having me on and, and giving the opportunity to share the love of this uh, awesome book that I've just been uh, fascinated with it for years and years, but I also want to uh, shout out to everybody who's shown up to the art room for us to hang out and uh, talk about art, talk about current events, talk about music, all this stuff. Um, and Giger. And, and, and Giger, definitely Giger. There's always going to be Giger. Um, uh, Dennis will tell you. Um, and to encourage anybody, you know, a lot. I know a lot of people maybe feel. Uh, a little anxious or awkward about uh, getting on a, a, a video chat like that. Um, but it really is just chill. And, you know, we uh, help each other out with our pieces. You know, it's, it's good to have other people to bounce creative ideas off, um, particularly when the imagery is satanic and most people are just going to like run screaming from the room. You know, we can look at it and, actually give each other constructive input so i encourage everybody uh to at least stop by one time or another and uh see if it's your cup of tea and i definitely would love to see you there johnny i would love to see some of your stuff yes sir awesome absolutely and again thank you for being in the discord art room is sundays i believe at 2 p.m usually yeah. usually at 2 p.m yeah and then Tuesdays, what time do we kick off on Tuesdays? Uh, eight. <laughs> I want to start doing it a bit earlier, but I think right now eight is my sweet spot on Tuesday nights. Eight until whenever we want to go asleep, uh, go to sleep. Sometimes I go to bed a little bit earlier than not. But um, eight to ten, I want to say, is the, the good point for Tuesday nights. Both Salem time, correct? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Salem time. And don't forget anybody that's currently on our discord or that wants to become a part of this. And that's not available for those two frames, uh, time frames. Now, you know, you got Veronica and Keen. Those are two times where you can pop in the art room and they'll be there to interact with, um, just, just, you know, shoot the shit with you. But the, that room is open, um, for anybody that wants to collab or wants to, you know, you're in the middle of a chat or you want to encourage other people, you got some time and you want to encourage somebody else to maybe just pop in and, and interact with, just show up and just connect to the art room and, um, and make it happen on your own as well. Uh, it's a great tool. Um, like they both said for collaboration. Um, and just, you know what I mean? Like not, community but just camaraderie just you know like you can made a great point a lot of the art that's going on um <laughs> the symbolism the imagery is of a satanic nature and uh you know in in this environment that we have here in the goat farm you know there can be you know good critiquing and suggestion and appreciation of the use of these um, symbols and imagery and it's just a fucking beautiful thing so thank you both for doing that you you veronica and key and you are my 
Um, only shout outs on this episode outside of our listeners. Thank you so much for the work you put into this episode uh, and for what you do on the goat farm. Um, I truly appreciate it. Yes, we all do. Yes. All right, everybody. As usual, that wraps it up for Satanic Study Hall on this awesome episode. Fucking about hot episode. <laughs> hot episode. The Master oh, and Margarita. Uh, we look forward to doing another one of these very, very soon. Um, Johnny's music reviews are coming back. Principal Pan and Devil's Dictionary in every episode. Yes, thank you all so much. Uh, we'll see you next time. I don't know about you, but I need a fucking margarita. I need a bath. <laughs> yes. I did think that's what this was about. Right? <laughs>